Lord, it's been a long week for so many of us. A week that has gone by so quickly. Some of us this week had it real hard. Some of us this week experienced tragedy, loss, death, sickness. Some of us this week had real big fights with our spouses, our friends, our relatives. Some of us this week couldn't pay a bill. Some of us this week have ignored our closest friends and family because we have been inundated in sin and isolated by shame. Some of us this week have had victory and enjoyed your presence more than ever. Some of us this week have prayed like we've never prayed before. We've read and understood like we've never understood before. Such a big chasm between the two, what the reality is, is that there's not. Both us who are struggling and us who are thriving need you. None of us are devoid from our need of you, King Jesus. You see, if we thrive apart from you, we're really breathing to death. And if we suffer apart from you, we are hopeless, hoping for death. But neither situation, Lord Jesus, if we can but turn our eyes towards you. We suffer not alone for you suffered and we rejoice in victory because you have had victory. If we have our eyes on you, the shame doesn't keep us alone. It draws us in to you and to your people. The victory doesn't cause us to be prayerless and thoughtless in terms of worshiping you, but we worship you all the more because you're the giver of good gifts. Lord, our hearts are hurting and our hearts are rejoicing and we're all under this one roof. And I don't have the mental faculties to speak to both people. I can't plan it that way. But you, Holy Spirit, you can make it work. You can make the word come alive in the hearts of both people, no matter how great or how small that chasm may actually be. Father, I pray this morning that you be glorified in this place. That as Pastor Eric said, our singular focus is to glorify the king, and that's it. We just want to say what you want us to say. We just want to do what you want us to do. That's it. Everything else is fleeting. Everything else is empty. Everything else satisfies and not. It's a pit, an endless pit, where we stuff it and stuff it and never feel fulfilled or satisfied. But when we do what we're built to do, which is to worship you.
what we do, what we're built and created to do, which is to bring call praises out to your name. No matter the circumstance at home, we're able to feel fulfilled in you, heard by you, saw, seen by you, felt by you. And so, Lord, just put your finger in this place. We don't, we don't need the whole you. We just, we just need you to put your finger in the door of this place that we will behold the awesomeness of who you are. Father, I, pray, I beg of you, fix this message. Fix these people's hearts. Fix my heart. Change it. Do work in us. We need you. We desperately need you. And so we thank you and pray to you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's a joy and an honor to be able to stand before you and uh, speak and proclaim God's word for you. Um, we're going to continue our series in the book of Jude called Contending for the Faith. So go ahead and open your copy of God's word to the book of Jude, to the book of Jude. While you're turning there, this past week, I decided to look up all the, the health fads that have gone on throughout the last decade or so. And I mean, there was too many health fads to really name them on a Sunday. There was tons of them. And I was doing so because I'm reading a book about health and how the body gets healthy and what happens to a body as it gets healthy. And I don't know if you guys remember any of these things, but these are the ones that kind of stuck out to me because I had never heard of them until recent. Um, Y'all ever heard of them thermal pills? They're supposed to heat your body up and then cause you to burn calories. So you take a pill and you get hot and sweaty and it's supposed to, supposed to make you healthy. And then there's green coffee bean pills. They, you know, it's, it's the same idea. It gets the heart pumping. And then, you know, because your heart's pumping, you're burning calories. And so, boom, you know, you're supposed to get healthy. And then I come across one that was like, it was, it was funny money. Now, if, y'all, if you do this, I'm sorry, I ain't, I ain't picking on you. I'm just saying. I don't know if this is really going to work. But it's this thing called sensor. And it's a little powder you put on your food. You sprinkle it on top, and it's supposed to make you feel full. And the infomercial had it where you sprinkle the powder, you feel full, and inevitably, you'll be healthy. What's funny is that when you look at the candid reviews of all of these things, none of the people ever get healthy. Do they lose weight? Yes. But they don't get healthy. You see, you can eat less junk, but if you keep eating junk, your body's going to be junk. Right? It's funny that we ignore the tried and true reality of eating healthy and moving your body. We want a quick fix. We want the, the quickest fix we can have. Getting healthy is, is a mindset change. It's not that we want to burn the bad stuff faster. It's stop eating the bad stuff, right? That's, that's how health happens. That's how you get healthy. Stop eating the bad stuff and focus on the good stuff. But the problem with that solution is that it's anticlimactic. You've heard it before, right? You know y'all can talk to me, right? I know it's like Baptist church, right? Y'all can talk to the kids. It's okay. I like it. It's anticlimactic. When you're, when you're sick and you don't feel well and your doctor tells you to change your diet, what do you do? <sighs> he tells you to stay hydrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it works though, right? That's the funny thing is that it, it, it works. Drink more water, your doctor says, and it works. You get better. But we ignore the tried and true things. And what we do is, as we ignore the tried and true things, we become more and more desperate because our, our circumstances get more and more dire. 
And as the circumstances get more and more dire, we're willing to do risky business in order to make up for the loss of our lack of believing the tried and true realities of eating healthy and moving your body, right? So you get desperate and you spend that $7 million for that magic pill or that magic whatever it is that's supposed to solve all your problems, but it never solves all your problems. There's no such thing. You guys, it's not hard to be healthy. It's just easy. It's not hard to be healthy. It's just easier not to be. And I think this morning, as we look through Jude, we're going to see the same principle. Jude is going to give us a similar principle, something that we've heard, something that we know, but it's the very thing we need to know if we're going to contend for the truth once for all given to the saints. For the first time in the whole letter, Jude is about to tell us exactly how to contend for the faith. If you do journey with me back to Jude verse 3, verse 3 and 4, this is what Jude told us at the very beginning of his letter. This is his plea. This is his imperative to us. He says, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share. Verse three, I found it necessary, right? This is a big deal. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Up until this particular point in the passage, Jude has not told us how to deal with these dudes. You notice that? He describes them. He gives characteristics of them. He, he talks about them and says how bad and how, how, how evil of an influence they are, but he doesn't tell us how to deal with these cats. Remember, we categorized them early on in the series as wolves. What's a wolf? A wolf is somebody who does harm to the sheep for self-gain. Right? A wolf is somebody who does harm to the people of God or the people in the church for personal gain. Now, as I read Jude, and as you read Jude, if you haven't read it before, you're looking for Jude to give you some tactics. You're expecting him to give you tactics on how to catch a dude, how to catch a wolf up in the, in the church, right? That's what you're waiting for. How do you catch him? You expect him to tell you strategies on how to kill a wolf. You expect him to tell you methods on how to run a wolf away, but that's not what Jude does. Instead, Jude tells us if we want to contend for the faith delivered once, and, once for all to the saints, we need to follow one simple imperative. Look at verse 21 of, of the book of Jude, verse 21. This is what he tells us to do. This is how you contend for the faith. You ready? Keep yourselves in the love of God. I don't know about you, but that sounded real anticlimactic to me when I read it. I was waiting for blood and guts. I was waiting for the apologetic argument that would catch them in the trap and the snare and make them backflip on themselves as they thought they knew what they were talking about. But ah, I threw this verse at them and gave them the Greek and ah, they fall out flat. That's what I was waiting for Jude to do. That's what I was waiting for Jude to tell me to do. I'm going to give you the secret sauce is what I'm waiting for. But Jude doesn't do that. He says to keep ourselves in the love of God. And at first glance, it may seem anticlimactic, but once we spend a little time unpacking what that looks like, what that means, it's a simple imperative, but it's a powerful imperative. It's the old tried and true method that works every time. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to keep yourself in the love of God. We're going to consider our motivation 
as to why we need to be keeping ourselves in the love of God. We're going to consider how we keep ourselves in the love of God. And then we're going to look at the inevitable result of keeping yourself in the love of God. Firstly, we need to look at this. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? And, and me and my brother Calvin spent some time a couple days ago chopping this text, man, and we were just like reading it and eating it. It was good. So we're going to have to do that again, brother. Where you at? We're going to do that again. That was fun. That was really fun. Before I tell you what keeping yourself in the love of God means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Because if I don't tell you what it doesn't mean, you're going to assume that it means that, and then you're going to find yourself in a world of theological trouble. And so I want to tell you what it doesn't mean first. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that Christians keep themselves saved by what they do. It does not mean that Christians keep themselves saved by what they do. Look in your cross-reference sheet. Galatians chapter 2. Everybody, if you have one of those, you have a cross-reference sheet. I'm going to use it a lot today. And I want you to read it with me because it's going to help you understand. That's why I put God's word before you in that way. You want your eyes there. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what Paul says as it pertains to that statement about not keeping yourself saved. He says, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Then in verse 3, he says this. Are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? What's, what's, he, what's, he, what's, what's the implication there? He's saying if something begins in the spirit, there's no way you can bring it to completion in the flesh. That means you can't do something to keep yourself there. God starts our journey with him, and God said that he would see it all the way to completion. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that Christians keep themselves saved by what they do. The second thing, it's not. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that we're able to take ourselves out of the love of God. Because you would think that. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that you're able to take yourself out of the love of God. Look at Romans chapter 8 in your cross-reference sheet. Let's read that. I'm going to read it to you. Follow along. It says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger of sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long and counted as sheep to be slaughtered. What's he saying? Dudes is out here murking us, but we still holding or something's holding us. But look at verse 37. What's his what's his answer? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's conclusion, he continues. He says, verse 38, he says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul exhausts the Greek language to tell you nothing can take you out of it. He said nothing created. If you're in that category, that means you can't even take yourself out of it. Nothing can take you out of the love of God. 
God is the one who ultimately keeps us in his love. You see that in Jude verse 1, the very first verse of the, of the book. He says that we're kept by God. And then verse 24, at the very tail end of it, it says that we're kept by God. In one of my favorite books of the Bible, the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he loses none of whom the Father gives him. John 6, 37 through 39. He loses none of them. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that you're able to take yourself out of the love of God. And I know some of us might struggle with that reality. I'm telling you, you can't. And I'm not telling you out of my own thing. I'm just reading the text to you. So what does it mean then to keep yourself in the love of God? Jesus gives us a clue as to what it means. And it was important that I tell you what it's not because it's going to look, Jesus is going to say something to make it look like it is those things. But we just got to understand the context. Look in your cross-reference sheet. Jesus is going to help us. John chapter 15, verse 9 and 10. Jesus is going to tell us what this looks like. And he himself is the example that he's going to use. John 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. He's talking to the disciples, right? What's the repetitive word in verse 9? Loved. Key word. Key word. Remember that word. It's the key to everything. Verse 10, now he's telling his disciples what it is. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Ooh, this can be touchy. This can be dangerous. Keeping yourself in the love of God means to intentionally obey Jesus's commands. That's what it means. Not in order to earn salvation, right? And not in order to keep salvation. But as a primary means of experiencing Jesus, experiencing Jesus and contending for the faith. John 14, verse 15 in your sheet says, Jesus says, if you love me, what will you do? If you love, you okay, baby? You okay? Okay. I know. I know, baby. What did he say in John 14, 15? If you love me, then you will what? Keep my commands. Notice something there. What was the key word from verse 9 in John 15? Love. He says, if you love who in John 14, 15? Who? Me. Not me, us. Me, Jesus, right? Sometimes we get caught in the trap of changing that. It says, I mean, we change it to be, because I love myself, I'll keep your commands, and then I better get my blessings. That's how we read that sometimes. But notice Jesus speaks directly to the motive. If you love me, then you will inevitably keep your desire to keep my commands. We need to be keeping God's commands out of love and gratitude for Jesus, not as a means to get what we want from him. When we keep Jesus' commands just to get what we want, this is what we're effectively telling him. We're saying, thanks for dying on the cross and all, but is that all you got for me? I know you were beaten, bruised, your beard was ripped out, you had a crown of thorns put on your head, you were stripped naked, hung on a cross with nine-inch nails in your palms, all to save me from God's wrath, but is that all you really got? I need a little more. 
You ever do something for somebody that cost you a lot and their response was a lack of gratitude? You ever go out on a limb to serve someone, to love someone, to do something in order to build them up and they're kind of like, uh -huh. if that If y'all didn't happen to you, man, when it does, you're going to feel what this is talking about here. You're going to be like, really? Really, bro? You feel me? Yo, y'all have some kids. Uh-huh, that's your problem. All y'all young people, you ain't got no kids. Have some kids. You're going to go heaven and earth. You're going to move it, brother. Am I lying? You're going to move heaven and earth. Daddy, man, I don't even like this place. You got to hold in the flesh. Now, it's vital. That's what we're telling, that's what we're telling Jesus at that point. That's what we're telling him. Uh, I know you, but really... Like, I'm trying, I need this, I need this, this little extra or sauce on the side. And sometimes he gives it to you, then you, you're not satisfied, you need a little. Now it's vital that we understand which law and which commands we're needing to obey here. It's vital. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 7, in your sheet it's there, he tells us that there is a law that leads to condemnation. And he tells us that there's also a law that leads to righteousness. And there's a motive behind the heart by which we follow these laws that will help dictate and determine whether or not we are condemned by the law or we are uh, given a position of righteousness through it. The law that leads to condemnation is what we find in our Old Testaments. If you didn't know, you know, those Ten Commandments that we put on our walls and those 600 plus other laws that no one really knows that we don't put on our walls but are part of the same unit as the Ten Commandments. Paul says that those commands, and he says so in 2 Corinthians 3, those things written on tablets of stone, those will lead you to condemnation. But the, there is a law that leads to righteousness, and that law is found in our New Testament, and it's commonly called the law of Christ, or, this, or another term for it is the law of love. Remember the key word from, from verse 9 to John 15. You find that in your, if it's not in your sheet, in Mark 12, 28 through 34, Galatians 6, 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 21. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. This is where we get our why for keeping ourselves in the love of God. So keeping ourselves in the love of God is obeying Jesus's commands. And Christians keep ourselves in the law. Uh, we keep ourselves in the law of Christ or we keep ourselves in the love of God, not out of fear, but out of gratitude of heart. Out of the key word, love. Christians love to keep the law of Christ, not out of selfish ambition, but out of thanksgiving for what Jesus has already accomplished for us. Some of you seek to obey the law of God because you fear judgment from God. Rightfully so, you should fear judgment of God. Others seek to obey the law of God out of selfish motives because you desire to be blessed by him. And so you obey him, hoping that he's a genie and the transaction will occur as soon as you obey the command. Some others, if you in here, seem to think that God will save you if you keep the law. I'm here to tell you it's impossible for you to keep the law. Those 10 commandments, those 600 plus other commands are a reflection of the nature of God. It's his holy, righteous standard. And there has only been one who has ever attained it. You know, once you broke one, you were eternally unable to attain it. 
All of you have broken one. So trying to keep it is futile. That's why it's called the law that leads to death. Because you strive your life trying to obey something that can never redeem you. But we as Christians keep the law of Christ or the law of love because we are compelled by love to do so. First John 5, 3 says this. It says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. But the second part is so vital. He says, and his commands are not a burden. All those laws are heaped upon your back. And what do they do but weigh you down into your sin? But there is a law in Christ through love that is no longer a burden unto you, but it is a freeing reality in response to his. I can get into the theology on why there's a shift in the law. It's because there was a shift in the priesthood in Hebrews 7 or 8. says that when there's a shift in the priesthood, there's a shift in the law. And since we have a new priest, no longer under the old Aaronic priesthood, we're under the priesthood of Christ Jesus, who's under the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now we have a new law. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the law of Christ that we follow. Sure, some of that stuff carries over. But if the law of love fulfills all the commands, you don't have to tell me to not murder if I love my brother and sister. John, verse John 5, 3 says that his, his commands are not a burden. How could we not want to keep the law of Christ after all that he has done? It's not a drudgery to obey the Lord of glory. It's not weariness to your bones to heed the creator of heaven and earth. It's not a burden to serve the one who died for me. To serve the one who absorbed God's wrath for me. Y'all don't get it. In 2005, I encountered the living God. This is me. In 2005, I encountered the living God. And he showed me through his word that I was a wretched, broken, undeserving heathen of a man that I was phony and I was a hypocrite I was a snake and a swindler I was a cheat and I was an addict I was a mugger and I was a liar true story he showed me that my sin offended a holy God and that the holy God had wrath waiting for me my sin separated me from God and it caused something called enmity between me and God. Enmity means beef. It caused beef between me and God. And we know who wins the beef between us and him, right? But God, in his mercy and in his grace, changed the disposition of my heart. I read how he entered into his own creation. How he died to reconcile sinners like me unto himself. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that he was the man and that all that he has done was accepted by God the Father. Jesus offered me salvation from my sin by grace. He offered me salvation from myself by grace. He offered me salvation from God's wrath by grace, all in the name of love. And guess what? He didn't have to do it. 
Can y'all blame me for wanting to observe and follow the law of Christ? Do you know what he has done for me? See, when you have a, a light view of God, you have a light view of salvation. When you have a light view of sin, you have a light view of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. When you don't understand how depraved you really are, how deep in the muck and mire your soul desires to be, and that he desired to pull you out of it, then you have no respect for what he has done for you. But when God opens your eyes by grace to see who you really are and the desperation in which you actually have for him, it changes everything. See, your problem is you think you're good. The problem is you think you're worthy of something. The problem is you think you're better than what you are. Dog, you trash. You have sinned against the Holy One. And his wrath is hot. And it burns. And it's eternal. Y'all don't get it? That's where you go. If not for his grace. If not for his mercy. In 2005, he gave me the gift of faith in his name. What does that mean? It means he opened my heart to entrust myself to him. And now I strive to keep the law of Christ because I'm compelled by love to serve the one who served me. Can you relate to that? Do y'all remember what it was like when God saved your soul? I'm dead serious. Think back to what it was, what it felt like, what, what, what was running through your heart, what was running through your mind when the Lord of heaven and earth encountered you. Have you forgotten so quickly about the salvation you have received? Think about it. Have you allowed your circumstances to overshadow the gift of the bloody cross? What was it like when God opened your eyes to his mercy and grace? I really want you to remember and I want you to worship him. And I also want to say, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're probably still walking in darkness. You probably don't know King Jesus. You might know about him. You read the book about him. But you've never met him. You ever heard the story of the preacher in the Mack truck? Preacher showed up, guest preacher showed up to preach at a church. He was late, 25 minutes late. Church has already started. The pastor of the church is freaking out because the guest, the guest preacher's not here. He shows up, crispy, looking real good, suit to the nines. He had the little crease going down. He had the gaiters on. He was looking smooth. Pastor said, hey, why were you late? He said, man, I got hit by a Mack truck. Think he believed him? You don't get hit by a Mack truck and look pristine. You don't get hit by a Mack truck and look like what you were. But some of us got the facade of crispiness and, and cleanliness. But when you encounter God, he breaks you. And you come and realize my leg is broke, my, my arm is broke, I'm jacked up, I need help, I need hospital, I need redemption. You don't come looking all like I'm good in your own, self, in your own self-sufficiency. You come broken before him because you've encountered something that has revealed to you the sin of your heart. He changes you. He's so holy, you can't be in his presence and be the same as you were last year. You just can't. 
And if you're the same, you've not been in his presence. There's not, you haven't been. He changes you by the sheer force of his presence. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I plead with you. I plead with you. You know, I don't plead with you. I plead with God. Open their eyes, Lord, to see themselves in the mirror of your glory and to be broken by what they see and to turn to you as the only remedy for their soul by grace through faith. Open their heart to entrust themselves to the person and work of the crucified and resurrected Lord. So we've seen the what is keeping the law of God. We've seen some of the why of why we're keeping the law of God. We're keeping the law of love. But how about the how? How do we do that? Now, I know that um, we saw some of that like practically in the, the motivation piece, but Jude gives us specifics on how to do this as it pertains to contending for the faith against these wolves. Look at verse 20 of Jude. This is the how. In the original language, there's one imperative in this section. It's to keep yourself in the love of God. The others are participles that support the imperative. So here's one of those. In English, it looks like four or three, three or four imperatives, but it's not that. Look what it says. It says in verse 20, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's how you do it. Anticlimactic? Tried and true. Jude tells us to build ourselves up and to pray in the Holy Spirit to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's take a look at that right quick. To be built up means to pack on. Okay, it means to add on to. It's like, it's like what we do with muscle. You pack on muscle. Okay, that's the idea. It means to make stronger. It means to add to what God has already supplied. That's what that word is there, to build up. It means to add to what God has supplied. Let me give you a, a chapter of this. First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, it's in your cross-reference sheet. Oh, look at this. Yeah, turn there. Woo. Look at look, look Peter saying. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to do what? Supplement your faith. What's he saying? Be, be built up in this. Okay, how? With goodness. And goodness with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with, keyword love. Verse 8, check this out. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Whew. For the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. That's when we say, Jesus, your cross is not enough, right there. Verse 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, look at this line, you will never stumble. 
Did you, you see what Peter just said? That's a big, that's a big statement. If you do these things, you will never stumble. And stumbling into the hands of these wolves that have infiltrated the church is exactly what Jude is calling us to avoid. That's why Jude and Peter are saying the same thing. Be built up. Supplement your faith with these things. But building ourselves up can never be done in our own strength. That's why he says what? We must also what? Pray in the Holy Spirit. It literally means to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. You see, once you encounter the Holy God, you recognize that you are in need of Him and that your self-sufficiency will not cut it in the economy of God. And it forces you to do business with God. That's what prayer is. It's an outward display of dependent communication to the Holy One. If you don't pray, you are not dependent. If you're not dependent, you're trusting in your own strength. You trust in your own strength, you fail because you're weak. Then you start the cycle over again. But Jude says to be diligent and dependent on, on God by praying in the Holy Spirit. The passage is crazy because it's telling us to do stuff we can't do. Did you notice that? It's, he says, keep yourself, but we know that only God can keep us. It says, build yourself, but we know only God can build us. It's the theological term. It's called compatibilism, if you want to know. Theologically, it's called compatibilism, that somehow our actions and God's sovereign directions are completely in symmetry with one another. I don't know how it works. No one on earth does. If they do, they lie. It's that God's sovereign decree and actions and orchestration of all things in heaven and earth and our desire to move and do what we do and how we do it are somehow, some way, in complete symmetry and sync with one another. You wanted a biblical example? Genesis chapter 50, uh, 50, 50, 20, 50, 30. Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph is thrown into the well. Who threw Joseph into the well? His brothers, right? But Genesis 50, I think it's 20, says that they meant it for evil, but God meant it, and that word meant means did the action for good. Don't ask me how that worked. They both did it somehow, but one had an evil motive and one had a good motive. I can't unpack that anymore now. I don't know how. But we contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God, depending on the Holy Spirit, as we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. A church full of people who are rooted in the love of God is a nightmare for a false teacher. You see why he's telling us to do this? Get healthy. And disease won't come. Disease comes as a result of unhealth. And so then we go to external means to gain health. But it never fixed the, the lap in your diet, in your exercise. Wolves don't prey on the strong. You ever, even in nature, a wolf never preys on the strong. They prey on the weak, they prey on the frail, and they prey on the isolated. And so Jude tells us to mount up together, to strengthen ourselves in the power that God supplies, and to walk in holiness is a ready recipe for a strong church that's able to combat these false teachers who desire to infiltrate it. Pillar Church, know this, if you keep yourself in the love of God because you're compelled by God to do so, then a wolf coming in here will have great opposition. 
and will not succeed because I will not condemn my brother or sister who has fallen in sin. I'm going to pray and love them instead, even though you try to call me to do the other. I'm not going to sow division with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to call you guys to come together and to work that joint out instead of picking a side and causing the schism of the divide to grow. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. One of the proofs that we're keeping ourselves in the love of God is that we grow in holy discontentment with this side of heaven. Look at verse 21 of Jude. He says to keep your, and this, this is just how you know what's going on with you. He says, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. My friends, this is the inevitable result. Listen to the heart of Paul in Philippians. He literally vo voices this himself in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 26. It's in your cross-reference sheet. It says, for me, this is Paul speaking, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means meaningful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, for the Philippians' sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the progress and joy of the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ may abound. That's what we're after, ladies and gentlemen, that their boasting of Christ may abound, that we are moving people closer to Jesus and each other. Because just like Paul, we may eagerly wait for Jesus to bring us to eternity but we know that there's major work to do on this side of heaven. And so what do we do while we are here on this side of heaven in light of the wolves coming to sow division? Remember a few weeks ago, we, that was one of their characteristics, right? In light of them coming to sow division and knowing that we're longing for heaven, what is our only proper response? Verse, verse 22 and 23 of Jude. How do we treat those individuals who have been touched by these wolves? Verse 22, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Sounds like Paul, right? There's work to be done on this side of heaven. What's Jew telling us to do? Have mercy on those who are wavering. Get to work. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Jude tells us that we combat the effects of a false teacher with mercy and love. We fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, which means you need to know one another. So if you up in here and you're isolated from the people of God, you are susceptible to the attack of a wolf and no one is there to carry or bear your burden with you. But if you're in community, now you have a group of individuals that can bear your burdens and when a wolf comes to attack, y'all got the power of the pack on your side. You got brothers and sisters praying, loving you, calling you out. That's dumb. Don't do that. Or that's smart. You should do that. Or I'm going to, you can lean on my faith because you ain't got none right now. You can have all of that. But we got to do it in mercy and love. Y'all know how to show mercy. You're, you were recipients of it. The culture got us so vindictive, though, don't it? The culture teaches us that we, should, we don't forgive people. We hold bitterness against them. We get angry about them because they did us wrong. 
We're quicker to judge someone than to show mercy. You know how I know? Because I've been in ministry for a little while, and anytime you're, you're running any kind of a small group, inevitably people start to fall to the wayside. And instead of me saying, I wonder if they're okay, I get mad because I don't see them. If you're a small group leader, you know how it feels. And you know what we do? Man, I'm about to just delete this person from the text, man. You know what I mean? Because they ain't even showing up anyway. That's the culture in you. But what does the word say? Hey, man, what's good? You all right? And it's not you all right leading to where you've been. It's you all right full stop and ready to receive whatever comes on the other side of that telephone. It's a doorbell when, when they didn't invite you over, but because of love and mercy, you ring that doorbell. You just show up. You all right? What's up? I got some food. You need, you need to talk, you need to pray. That, is that not welcoming? Is that not loving when someone show up with some grub? Guys, understand this. Bearing one another's burdens is the last thing the culture wants us to do. It's the last thing that the devil wants us to do. He doesn't want us to be unified because he wants us to reject each other because he knows. Here's a free verse for you, right? Mark chapter 3, verse 24. He knows that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. God is instructing us to have mercy on the one who's doubting because the flames of judgment is licking at their heels. But we won't condemn them. We're going to love them back to the Lord. We're going to teach them to hate sin because Jesus wants his people to abide in his love. So while we wait for the coming of our Lord, we plead with people. We have mercy on people. We proclaim the good news of the gospel to people and we live and walk our, out our salvation in fear and trembling. We keep ourselves in the love of God. And thus by doing, we keep wolves from our mists. Guys, keep yourself in the love of God and lead others to do the same. Not out of fear or judgment. Not out of trying to maintain their salvation. But because you are compelled and reminded by love. Father, thank you so much for the blessed opportunity that we get to learn from your servant Jude. There's so much in this little letter for us to learn, for us to chew on, for us to grow in. And I'm grateful that you've given us the opportunity to do so. I pray that anything that I said that was not accurate will be stripped from memory from everybody. And I pray that all that is true would haunt them until they submit unto it. Lord Jesus, would you Show yourself mighty in their life. Would we sing because we are compelled by love? Because we remember what you have done. Let us no longer be guided by anything other than the power and presence of King Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.